the most uh, universal fears in the world for humans? What do you think? What are people afraid of? Tornadoes, yes. Yeah. That wasn't in the top five, but yes, death. Death certainly is. What else? Failing. Failing, yep. Especially uh, some type of social failure that people see. So people are like failing at speech or failing very publicly. That was in the top five. What else? Cancer. Cancer, yeah, like some type of serious illness. Um, none of us mentioned it, but one of the top five was a fear of insects, bugs, and a fear of snakes. Anybody okay. terrified of snakes? You have a pet snake? I did. Oh man, I don't like snakes. Um, I knew some people who had pet snakes, uh, but I actually knew some people in Tennessee who raised snakes and bred them as pets and sold them. Um, I never went over to their house. I don't like snakes. I'm a little bit afraid of snakes. Um, it was on the list of the top five things that people are afraid of was fear of snakes. In fact, I think in general, humans kind of have a natural fear of snakes throughout time. And uh, snakes have often been an archetype for evil. Like they're a picture or a symbol sometimes of evil. Um, Harry Potter's villain Voldemort, who was accompanied by a human snake, right? His symbol was a snake. But even long before J.K. Rowling wrote her books, ancient Sumerian and Mesopotamian and Egyptian mythologies used snakes as a stand-in for evil. So when a snake showed up into an ancient story, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, or some of these old, old, ancient stories on Earth, ancient people saw that and they're like, oh, the snake's not the good guy in the story. Like when the snake showed up, nobody was like, oh, I bet that's a hero. Everybody was like, oh, the snake's the stand-in for the bad guy, for the evil. Um, some cultures saw snakes as messengers of the dead. That's how Egyptians saw them. They're like, once you die, you have to make your way to the afterlife. And uh, snakes were kind of in your way because they were traveling between the living and the dead. And they imagined that the dead were underground and that snakes buried their way into holes in the ground. So they were messengers coming back and forth. Some ancient Egyptian uh, writing talks about how like when the pharaohs died, they would have to fight their way past the snakes to get to the afterlife. So when a snake showed up in an ancient story, people knew this wasn't the hero, this wasn't a pet, this was the bad guy. Um, everyone knew the snake was the stand-in for the villain of the story. It was the personified image of evil itself. Now, people have long struggled with this idea of a snake talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, almost any atheist, if you listen to their talk on like why you shouldn't believe in God, they're like, how ridiculous is it to think of this snake talking to a person in a garden? That's just a ridiculous idea. But the passage was written to ancient Israelites leaving 400 years of hearing stories in Egypt where snakes were always the stand-in for evil. And so they wouldn't have been surprised by this. Uh, ancient Egypt, uh, Israelites wouldn't have got caught up in the fact that animals didn't talk. When I first read the Bible, when my family first started attending church, I remember reading Genesis and thinking, this is just like the Chronicles of Narnia. Like this Garden of Eden is just the Chronicles of Narnia. All the animals talked. Um, that's probably not what the author was trying to convey here. You'll notice Eve wasn't shocked, like, oh man, the snake is talking to me. Because the type of story that the author is telling is trying to tell us Adam and Eve were talking to evil itself. So let's jump in and look at our passage and kind of see what, it's, what it actually says and talk about this character of the serpent. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, when I read that, I naturally have some questions. What's some of your questions? Do you have any questions? I mean, I mean him like he's a snake. <laughs> Why is he talking? Uh, if this snake is evil, if it's a picture of evil, where did evil come from? Did God make evil? Like, how did it creep into this story where the story doesn't tell us something? As modern readers, remember, we have all these questions we want to bring to the text. that ancient Israelites reading this text had different questions. They were thinking about different things. They were looking to the story to answer different questions than we are. The story isn't interested in answering our modern questions, but they're ancient questions. Um, this snake never shows up again in the Bible, the character of the snake. However, John in the book of Revelation says that this snake is the devil who does show up again. Revelation 22, uh, it says that he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. Um, so John here draws his connection between the snake character with the dragon. So our mental images of a snake in a tree probably are way off. Um, if it's, he's the dragon, as John identifies in the book of Revelation, you know, the pictures, rather than Eve talking to a snake in a tree, might look more like this. You know, like she's talking to a dragon. That's a very different picture than I grew up with, with my flannel graph, you know, in Sunday school, <laughs> and they're putting little snakes in trees. And, uh, it's a, just a different different image. Um, the Hebrew word here that's translated serp, serpent is nakash. Um, and it quite literally means hiss. Remember, Hebrew is a very symbolic language. Um, so it can be used to describe a serpent. Um, but it can also just be used to describe the sound of a serpent, like a hiss. Um, so maybe the image we need to think of is more of a dragon like this when we imagine the story. Or maybe we need to think of it as Adam and Eve were having a conversation with a hiss. Now, both the term devil and Satan are titles rather than proper names. We don't have the time to do a full theology on the enemy, Satan, the devil. Um, we could spend a whole series on that. But just for a quick kind of overview, devil means backbiter or slanderer, and Satan means the accuser or the adversary. The terms Satan and devil both come from root words about calling people things that they aren't or accusing people of things that they've done. This is uh, words for calling people out for what's wrong with them. If God names us, Satan misnames us. If God says we are loved, it's Satan who says you are hated. When we call people names on social media, we can either be like our father the devil or like our father in heaven. I have to think about sometimes what I write and what I say. Am I being a backbiter, an accuser, an adversary? 
The voice that tells you that you are worthless, that you don't matter, that you're all alone, that God doesn't see you, that he's never coming through for you, that it's all over, that you're a failure, that you have it harder than anyone else and no one appreciates or sees your struggle, that voice, that hiss, is the adversary, the accuser, the devil. Now this accuser, this adversary, shows up a few times in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Job, and then in Zechariah. He's not a major character at all. He's very much on the sidelines. God is the main character, and his interactions with humans. But John links the character in the garden to these stories of the accuser and the adversary. He links it to this dragon, this hiss, this accuser, this face of evil. In Job, we see the accuser come before God, and God's like, have you seen how righteous some people are? How good some humans are? How much they reflect my character and my nature? And he goes, oh yeah, but humans only do that because you give them stuff. If you didn't give them stuff, they would turn on you just like that. And we get the story of Job. Um, in the book of Zechariah, um, Sorry, let me back up for a second. Uh, Satan's main message seems to be in the Old Testament that humans are garbage and that they're not worthy of God's love and should be destroyed. So when we look at the gas chambers of the Nazis or the sex trafficking of children all across the world or ethnic genocides, it's perfectly accurate to say devils are at work beyond even the evil of humanity. And we're all capable of doing evil things. There are dark forces that want to destroy ourselves according to the biblical story. Forces that want humans to sink so low that they become like animals instead of reflecting the divine image of God himself. The second time we see this devil, this adversary, this accuser show up is in the book of Zechariah. Um, anybody do any light, re light reading in Zechariah this week? It's not a book we turn to a lot. It's actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. I love the book of Zechariah. Um, but the prophet Zechariah has this vision of Joshua, the high priest. And it's this vision in heaven. And Joshua the, Joshua, the high priest, is standing there and he's covered in dirty rags. And there's somebody standing next to him who Zechariah calls the accuser, the Satan. And he's just saying, Joshua is a piece of garbage and filth. Look at everything he's done. He's terrible. Look at all his failures. Look at every time he's gone wrong. He is no good. This guy is garbage and trash. And then it says this other character shows up, this angel of the Lord, and he rebukes him and says, no, no, no. This is a man that I plucked out of the fire. He should have been burned, but I reached in and pulled him out. He's a brand plucked from the fire. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Seriously, like, if you're watching online, just turn this off. Go read Zechariah 3. It's going to be better. After this, guys, go read Zechariah 3. It's just such a great story. Um, the name Joshua is the same name as Jesus in the New Testament. His name literally means Yahweh saves. And so you have this great image of, like, this court case in heaven where the, um, the high priest is on trial and God the Father is the judge and you have Satan accusing him as the prosecutor and you have Jesus defending him and he's literally holding up his nail-scarred hands and saying, objection, you can see the burns where I pulled him out of the fire. He does not deserve to be punished today. Um, as exciting as I get, excited as I get about the passage, let's get back to our passage in Genesis 3. And here we see this accuser, this adversary, this backbiter, this enemy, he starts with a question. Now questions aren't bad. I think questions are one of the most important things in our faith. 
If we're not asking questions, we're probably not looking for truth. Um, Jesus himself, when he was asked a question, he would often ask a question back to the person who asked him a question to get to the heart and the root of their real issue. Um, so there's nothing wrong with asking questions. I believe that many times there's more faith in honest doubts and questioning your faith than there is in blindly memorizing creeds and doctrines and just knowing the right answers, but you've never actually wrestled through them and asked hard questions about them. But the nature of this question was, did God really mean what he said? God told you something, but did he really mean that? The question was designed to make them doubt the trustworthiness of God and also assume that there was wiggle room in what God said. Now, this still happens today. This isn't something that just happened in the garden a long time ago. God says something, and we doubt that he will follow through. God says something, I'll read that he said something, and I'll be like, yeah, but not for me. He's not going to do that. We doubt that the chief characteristic of God is goodness, and we doubt that he's a God who makes things good. Over and over again in the story, up to this point, what happens? God makes something, he's like, that's good. God makes something, he says, that's good. He looks at Adam, he says, yeah, it needs community. Oh, here's Eve, now it's good. He just keeps making things good. But what the adversary, what the accuser wanted to do here was, does God really make things good? Or does sometimes he make things bad? And that's still the question that he has us ask today, that we wrestle with ourselves. Is God making some things bad in my life? Or is he making all things good? We blame many times the bad things in our life on God. And there was this quote by Dallas Willard, never believe anything bad about God. I wrestle with this quote, and I remind myself of this quote, and I go back to this quote again and again. God is a good creator who makes things but on the other side, sometimes God says things that annoys me or rubs me the wrong way. So I attempt to dismiss what he said by asking, is that really what he meant? I looked at the fruit on the tree of knowing good from evil, and I'm like, that fruit looks really good. So I think what God meant to say was, eat it, but just don't eat a lot. You know, like, have a bite, but don't eat the whole thing. Smell it, but don't, you know, consume it. Um, when God says something like, love your enemies, I want to add caveats. Not people who vote like that. Not people who look like that. Not people from over there. Not people who have hurt me like that. Not Villanova students partying next door. You know, like, I, I want to I apply love your enemies to some people who are lovable, who aren't really enemies, but not really to those who are out to hurt. Now, sometimes the church has developed a habit of forming an outlandish position from something that God has never said. And this happens a lot. People will be like, I'll die for this position. And I'm like, yeah, but Jesus never said that. Like, where are you getting this from? But sometimes I also form an outlandish defense for why God didn't mean what he actually did say. When I do that, I'm repeating the fallacy, the foolishness, the mistake of our first father and mother. I'm assuming that God is not good and that he does not do good. God commands things because he wants to funnel us towards joy. He doesn't command things just to be like, oh, I'm just going to see what happens. It's a psychological experiment. I want to see if I can control that. God never does that. God commands things because he wants what's best for us, because he wants to bring good into our life. 
God is always trying to funnel us towards joy, to funnel us towards himself, the source of all life and joy. Now, when Eve explains the command of God to the snake, she adds something here that we don't see God ever saying in the text. She adds, we cannot eat of it, and we cannot even touch it. But she adds on to the commands of what God said. Something that God never said, she's now added in as equal value to the rest of the command. Um, now, this has continued again and again throughout time, right? God says something, and then humans add on to it. We tack on a whole bunch of other stuff. We saw this in the days of Jesus, when um, God had given them a command of keep the Sabbath day as a holy day of rest. And then the Pharisees added all these obligations onto it. Humans have added to the commands of God things that God have never said over and over again. We take things that God intended to be blessings, and we add a whole bunch of stuff onto them until they turn into burdens. Religion at its core is humans adding things onto uh, what God actually said, adding all these human expectations. And you're like, why are we doing all this stuff? Later on this year, I'm going to do a series on what is church? What should it be? What should it not be? Sometimes we've tacked so much stuff and expectations onto it that it's become a burden rather than blessing. But the hiss, the dragon, the accuser tells the woman, you won't die if you touch it. Well, obviously, God never said you'd die if you touch it. Um, in fact, he says, if you eat it, something good will come from it. You will be like the Elohim, uses the word that we see in Genesis chapter 1 here. The snake promises her something she already has because she's already like God. Right? He made her in his image. He made Adam in his image. They are already like Yahweh. The snake is claiming, I'm going to give you what you already have. That's what the enemy, the accuser, that's what uh, sin always promises us. Something that we already have. Something that it can't deliver. But the snake is also claiming that they will know good from bad if they eat of this tree. They'll give them wisdom. They'll be able to understand things like God does. So what's going on here? Um, are they just like this apple tree, right? Isn't that how we always think of it? Like there's this apple tree and they should eat it. If you have an iPhone, right, on the back there's an apple symbol logo and it's a forbidden fruit with a bite taken out of it, right? Um, it was not an apple tree. Why do we have such an image of apple trees? Probably because during the Renaissance, as the church started to pay artists to depict biblical scenes, um, many times they used the apple image and some of those iconic paintings have become such a part of our imagery of the Bible that we think of them even more than we think of the text that's actually written here. So it wasn't an apple tree. In fact, some scholars debate whether or not there was a tree at all or whether the tree simply represents the choice to define good and bad for themselves. Up to the point in this story, right, who says when something is good? Who says when something's not good? He's like, Adam's all alone. He needs community. That's bad. God. He's defining all the right and the wrong, all the chaos and the order, what is tov in the Hebrew, and what is raw, what is order, what is chaos, what is good and has potential for more good, and what is not good and has potential for less good. Humans work as his instruments to spread tov, but they don't define what Tov is. Remember, he'd go to garden, and then he put the humans in the garden, and he said, do more of this. Spread this throughout the world. That was the command that he gave the humans. Multiply this good thing that I've done. Expand goodness throughout. 
Um, he showed them what Tov was and then said, make more of this. Now the humans are like, what if we do something that God says is raw, chaos, but we call it Tov? Can we make Tov out of raw? Can we redefine things so that uh, they work out for in our benefit? My friend hangs wallpaper in high-end homes around uh, Philadelphia, and he's been in some crazy homes, and sometimes he'll tell me about them and uh, how huge they are. But he hangs wallpaper. He doesn't choose the wallpaper. A designer does that. Someone who has a cohesive vision for the entire house says, hey, bring your crew in and hang wallpaper. Um, he never chooses the wallpaper. He just simply says, that's the one you want? Okay, we'll hang it. He says, sometimes I only see the entryway or I only see the single room that we walk into. And he's like, I don't see the huge, massive houses. We just have a limited picture. But he says, the designer has a picture for the whole home. And so sometimes we'll hang a wallpaper and I'll be like, why does anybody want this wallpaper? What? Like, this makes no sense. And then he realizes, oh, it's part of a bigger story. It's part of a bigger picture. I don't have the whole picture, but I trust that the designer does. Humanity was placed in the garden with the expectation that they were gonna carry out God's vision and design for the world. But now they were deciding, maybe we could have our own vision. Maybe we could have a different vision than his. Every time we redefine good and bad for ourselves, we're eating from the tree of knowing good from bad. We're circumnavigating our need for God. Saying, I don't need it. I can figure it out on my own. Uh, my atheist friend, he always brings up, he's like, it's not fair that some people long ago ate some fruit and now I gotta suffer all the negative consequences of death and sickness and war and disease in my world because they did that so long ago. It's not my fault, I didn't do that. But the story of the Bible is that we all keep eating this fruit. We all keep trying to cut God out of the story, trying to cut God out of our lives. So we're gonna find out next week that the humans would work in the garden and then God would walk with them and celebrate their work and spend time with them and talk about what they were gonna do next. God wasn't interested in controlling the humans, like I'm the only one who can define Tov and Ra. It's all about me. No, he was interested in community. The humans were saying, we can carry on the work that we're doing without you. We're cutting out the steps when we spend time with God because we don't need them. We can expand this garden. We can expand goodness and blessing without you. Now, I've heard some sermons trashing Eve. Um, I've seen some memes trashing Eve. Um, I've heard some jokes trashing Eve like, man, if we could have just kept Eve under control, you know, we wouldn't have this problem. That's ridiculous. Adam is with her every step of the way through this story. Um, the you, you'll see in here where it seems like the snake is just talking to the woman because he keeps saying, you can't eat from the tree. You can't. Uh, but the you in this passage is plural. Hebrew and Greek both have plural yous. In English, we just have a singular you because our language is very individualistic. Uh, the closest we come in English to making a plural you is y'all. Um, so if you're from the South or you've been around people from the South, they say y'all all the time. It's never just a you. It's always like, y'all gonna come over for some cornbread, you know, <laughs> some sweet tea, you know. Garvey's gonna talk to me about that, that accent later. Um, so if we read through this passage with the word y'all, all of a sudden it starts to open up the, the fact that this isn't just about Eve, it's about 
Adam and Eve there together. And in fact, if you don't believe me, you can look down at verse 6. It says the Adam was there with her. She gave some to her husband who was with her. So they're both there together. I like to read it with the y'alls instead of the yous when I read through the passage because it reminds me Eve's not there by herself. It's uh, more than one person when it's saying you. And it makes Satan sound real country. And uh, I don't know, that just kind of makes me laugh. And it makes me think of The Devil Went Down to Georgia, which is a great song if you haven't heard it. Um, so he tells Eve, who, and Adam is with her, and Adam is totally approving of everything she is doing. At any time, he could say, no, let's not do this. In fact, if anything, this story is painting Adam as so cowardly, he let her touch it first to see if she died from touching it. So Adam's there, and he's like totally approving of everything that's happening. And he's like, yeah, you touch it first, Eve. Like, oh, she picked it? Oh, she didn't die? Okay, we're good. Like, he's just absolutely not a good image of man here. Um, so the next time someone makes an Eve in the apple joke, remind them that Adam was literally so cowardly that he let her touch it first in case she spontaneously combusted before he took some. Uh, this is not a hero story for men. This is actually a pretty bad look on them. Now, notice the path that Eve takes in choosing to dethrone God here. She sees, she delights, she desires, she takes, and she eats. Um, Dr. Tim Mackey notes that the tree of knowing good from bad, it says, was in the middle of the garden, and the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. He says you have to choose to walk by the tree of defining good from bad for yourself in order to come to God, the source of life. The eyes of the window, or, or the eyes are the windows of the soul, the old saying goes. And Jesus seemed to agree with that. He said in Matthew 6, 22-23, the eye is the guiding light of your body. If you look at good things, your life will be filled with light. If you look at bad things, your whole life will be full of darkness. If the guiding light of your body is darkness, that is truly a deep darkness. What we look at. What we long for steers the direction of our lives. What we long for, we will come to believe, will bring us joy. And ultimately, humans make any sacrifice in their pursuit of joy. God claims that his commands will lead us to joy. Our eyes claim to spot the things that will bring us joy that Yahweh is keeping from us. Will we trust our eyes or will we trust our Social media is terrible about this, right? The whole design is about showing you other people's highlight reels so you can see what you don't have. That's the choice of knowing, from, um, that's the choice of the tree of knowing good from that. That's the choice in front of the first man and woman. That's the choice in front of every man and woman here today and watching online. Can you trust your eyes or do you trust your God? Um, they say seeing is believing, but our eyes lie to us. We've got some examples up here. Um, is that a rabbit or is that a duck? Is this an old woman or is this a young woman? It's like the more you look at it, the more confused I get because you start to see both sides. It was like that old um, thing that went around on the internet. It was like, is this blue or is this gold? Your eyes can't always be trusted. So. Our passage ends here. We end in verse 7 with evil winning, the serpent snickering off somewhere on the sidelines at his success. But evil doesn't ultimately 
win in our world and doesn't ultimately win in our lives. Yahweh is going to deliver a promise. The woman will have a descendant who will crush evil completely. Evil will strike him, but he will wipe it out. The hiss will be silenced when Jesus dies on the cross. Struck by evil and yet dying, dealt a death blow to evil and death itself. So when I hear the hiss in my life, in my head, in my story, you're not good enough, no one loves you, you'll never matter, I remind myself of the serpent crusher's words. Jesus said, I'm making a place for you in my home, so we'll be together forever. I will be with you always, go in my power, with my presence. I don't call you my servant, I call you my friend. Ask, seek, knock. I love giving good gifts. My power shows up best in weakness. Because I love you, I lay down my life so that you might enjoy my rich life forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for silencing the hiss of the enemy. Thank you for being stronger than darkness. Thank you for suffering death so that we might taste life again. We are so grateful that you have defeated the serpent, the accuser. Um, Lord, that when we stand in heaven clothed in all our failures, all our mistakes, all the wrongful things we chose by choice, you say, no, this one is a brand that I have plucked from the fire. God, I pray that you will remind us of your love, that we will hear your voice 